from Nevada Public Radio. I'm Joe Shaneman. It's State of Nevada. And today we're talking about the most popular hobby in the world and one that many Nevadans take part in, and that's gardening. And while it's still a little chilly out, it's not freezing, and this could be the time to start planting some of your favorite garden vegetables and plants and ornamentals. So with me is Norm Schilling of Schilling Horticulture, and many of you know he's also the co-host of our Desert Bloom podcast. Also with me is Lauren McGrew, Botanic Garden Manager in Clark County for the UNR Extension. And they're here because so many of us are from somewhere else, a lot of places that don't have the kind of extreme climate that we experience in southern and northern Nevada. And what works in those places where we came from doesn't always work here with our plants. Lauren and Norm, welcome. Uh, thanks, Joe. Good thanks morning. for having me. Uh, Norm, I'm going to start with you. You know, we've talked about the warming of our winters, really the warming of, of every season. I wonder how this past winter has compared, because a lot of times you have talked with me about the need for it to get very cold so trees get time to rest. Well, it, it was a, it was a mild winter. I mean, we had a couple weeks, I think, a few weeks of cold weather and a little cold snap lately, but not that much. I think the main thing with, uh, with trees and cold in the winter is some varieties of fruit need uh, uh, freeze hours or chill hours. And that's uh, hours below 40 degrees, and it just depends on the type of tree and the variety. So some things like uh, like cherries, well, cherries never. You should, I don't think you should try and grow cherries here. I have seen a few produce, but but like a lot of apples and pears, again, it depends on the variety. Need a certain amount of chill hours for them to even produce fruit. If it doesn't get cold enough, long enough, they won't produce. So are you thinking a lot of the the plant, the fruit trees aren't going to be producing this year? Well, yeah. Well, here's the thing. I mean, you shouldn't be planting. I don't want to discourage people, but I don't think you should plant apples and pears anyways because they're really challenged in this climate. Um, the, the fruit trees, the fruit bearing trees that do well here are basically citrus, pomegranates, and figs. And then any of the stone fruits, apples, pears tend with the heat, uh, the heat in the summer and the soils, it's just a really rough life and they're highly susceptible to borers. So, you know, you, you, you know, I know a pear up in Summerlin that, uh, you know, I've gotten to eat pears from for over, over a decade, and it's really reliable, but it's very much the exception. For every really healthy producing fruit tree in that group, uh, I've, I see 20 or 30 or 50 that are dead or dying. But, but you always talk about citrus. You think citrus is a good thing to plant here? More and more because it's getting warmer. So when I started in horticulture 30 plus years ago, I was taught you put citrus in a pot so you can bring it into the garage in the winter, right? Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, I planted my first citrus outside at my house and I'm on, I'm on the east side of the valley where it's warmer, right? It gets colder around the perimeter from the northwest and south especially, but out towards the edges. So I'm on the east side, it's a little bit, but I put it in a protected, I put a, put a blood orange in a protected location by my front door so I'd get the fragrance and the fruit and it's really beautiful and then it didn't bloom for a while, or I mean it, it bloomed but it didn't set fruit. But anyways, it was protected. But then over the past, I don't know, eight years or so, I started feeling more and more comfortable about planting outdoors. Now, there's still a chance a cold spell will come by and nip them. They can take damage and then regrow. But I think unless you're really out in one of the perimeter cold spots, cold areas of town, the chances of losing citrus, freezing back completely and dying, 
is is really low now. So, so and, global warming, the the baking of the planet's good for citrus in yeah, uh, the lost, citrus in, in Vegas. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> but, I, I hate to say that, but yeah, it's true. It's, there's some ask, upside. What What about the use of water? I've always asked you this, having to do with fruit trees. Are fruit trees the best thing to plant in a desert when yes. we have such a water situation? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I say it unequivocally. Uh, Look, you're going to you're going to eat apricot. So okay, so I have some apricots and plums and peach, right? Which are trees that are challenged, but I give them organic mulch, a nice wide wetting pattern. I plant them well, I fertilize them, put them on a good fertilization program, I baby them, right? And ultimately, someday they too will get borers and decline, right? But in the meantime, I can eat that fruit. They're not drought tolerant. But here's the thing. I'm going to eat plums and peaches and apricots, whether I grow them or not. If I don't grow them, they're probably growing in California or Arizona, and then they're shipped here, and they come with packaging and waste. And they are grown on the same Colorado uh, uh, basin water that mine are, right? So locavorism, eating out of your own garden, is actually very environmentally beneficial. Oh, and it's organic. Oh, and it's delicious. It is way more tasty. All right. So, yeah. Drop the mic on that one. Lauren McGoo, and I said McGrew earlier. I'm it's sorry. McGoo. 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 Sorry. She no is the Botanic Garden Manager for the UNR Extension in Clark County. And Norm Schilling of Schilling Horticulture, co-host of our Desert Bloom podcast, and you. And we got an email here from Susan who says, could you ask your guests what would be the most truly sustainable edible landscape plants one could grow in a standard residential yard. I would also like to know the best practices to reduce dependence on Lake Mead for irrigation water. Lauren, I'm going to turn to you for this. Well, people often don't think of prickly pears as an edible um, landscape plant, but they are. Um, I, uh, I think the Opuntia ficus indica and the Opuntia santerita are delicious uh, species. And so I do recommend those. Um, I also recently accessioned a jujube in the Botanic Gardens collection, and I'm interested to see how it does. I've heard good things. Um, have you tried jujubes, Norm? Not personally, and there's not many that I've seen in the valley. Yeah, I'm interested to see how it does. But um, as Norm was saying, citrus is kind of a go-to here. One, one of our staff has a jujube tree, uh, actually. Does here. it produce? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Um, and yes, it does. I'm getting the thumbs up from uh, behind the glass right now. Uh, obviously, right listeners can't see this. But uh, prickly pear, what does that taste like? Does it taste prickly, like a pear? Prickly pear is delicious. You do have to prepare it well, um, but you can make it into a jam and you can make it into a drink. Um, I it's, it is an edible plant. I have it included in the edible demonstration landscape in the botanic gardens. Yeah, and sometimes when you go into the supermarket, you see nopalis, the pads of the opuntias, right? And you just want to be really careful. I worked with a guy named Sergio when I worked at the water district, and he would harvest them and, and eat them with his lunch. We'd take a lunch break, and he would peel them and eat them. He said, they're really good, Norm. And I was really tempted. I was getting more and more tempted, but you know, eating cactus was a little scary. But one day he wasn't quite careful enough, and he got... He got thorns in the roof of his mouth. So, you know, that kind of turned me off for a little while. So you just want to make sure that they're peeled really thoroughly. Or there is a cactus, Peruvian, it's Peruvian apple cactus, which is Sirius Peruvianus. And it's a really upright, 
very beautiful, very bold structural plant. I mean, they get they can get really big, and if they get good soil, they get really big pretty fast. They produce uh, the fruit is probably maybe two and a half inches by two inches, mm. and it's thornless. I think it's com- yeah, it's completely thornless and absolutely delicious when they're ripe. So you just gotta, and if you don't know if they're ripe or not, here's the nice thing, you know, you you grab one and it's not quite right and you just wait a little bit. And I think what happens is they start to just uh, uh, bend at the base of the fruit a little bit and they get soft. So, you know, uh, we've got a customer who's got like about five of them and he probably gets, I don't know, 500 or more fruit a year. Wow. And they're delicious. Uh, Susan also had this question, the best practices to reduce dependence on lake mead for irrigation. Best practices really to, to water as little as possible. Yeah. So so there's two different uh, approaches to this. It's, one would be, what, what do you plant to create a truly drought-tolerant landscape? And one of the things that surprises people is a lot of the uh, desert ornamentals you know, once they're established and if you if you give them some nice wide irrigation, a lot of these plants, like even the Texas Rangers that you see all over town and mesquites and acacias and, and desert willows and and um, a lot of the shrubs, uh, butterfly bush, not the uh, Budlia marubifolia, not Budlia davidii, which is a green one. It's a silver plant. In fact, silver plants, small leaf plants, um, fairy duster, things like that. You can water that landscape seven times a year, 10 times a year, right? Once it's established, you can't do that at first when you first plant it because it has a really limited root ball. So you can build a really, really drought tolerant landscape. Now, the other way to approach it is or think about it is, okay, I have this landscape. How do I make it? How do I, with the landscape I've got, become more uh, water efficient or responsible with that resource? And that, that, so one of the things that's also surprised me, and this has been a learning process for me also over the years, of course, is that they – sometimes I'm surprised by some plants that I think need more water. And people, through benign neglect and slowly easing them off, these plants can establish and take much more water. Now, here's the thing. The plants will teach you. And the other – okay, one final point on this. I see lots of desert landscapes where it's rock and it's in sun and they got a bunch of plants and they're watering six days a week in the summer, right? Which is what the uh, Mm -hmm. SNWA allows. Um, There might be one or two Indian hawthorns in amongst that or a couple photinias, higher water use plants. 80, 90% of the plants may already be desert plants that you could water once or twice a month or once a week once they're established again, right? But you've got a few higher water use plants. If you start backing off year to year, next year, water one day less, right? The year after, water two day lesses. Those more water thirsty plants are going to naturally croak. And you say, okay, well, that thing's not doing well. Obviously that, and you can see the wilt on the days when it's not watering, right? If you go two days in a row, it's like really wilting. Well, that's, that's a high water user. Maybe it's time for you to get rid of that plant and plant something in its place that's going to do really well, be beautiful, and be drought tolerant. Thank you. Uh, Lauren, is are, are drought tolerance techniques the type of thing that uh, you, you might teach at the Botanic Garden? Yes. I really emphasize proper irrigation management. I know that especially as everyone removes their lawn um, due to recent ordinances, there's a lot of interest in um, xeriscaping, drought tolerant, drought resistant landscaping. And I want to emphasize that 
we need to focus on irrigation management and that plants are not the problem. It's the water management. And um, we do offer classes to the public. Uh, I encourage everyone to come to 8050 Paradise Road and see the botanic gardens and um, really make sure that the irrigation that they do apply to their plants is um, adequate for the plant and not one size fits all. Some plants do not need the six days a week in the summer. Yeah, yeah I've had plants or, or trees that I haven't watered I'm, I'm seriously in years and they're still going strong. I mean, I, I'm just doing that because my sprinkler broke and uh, I didn't know how to fix it. So I just let it go and it was an old tree. So it just kept growing. Which tree I mean, is you're this? You're looking at me like, Which tree? like a frowning. Uh, it's that great big gigantic pine tree in my backyard. Okay. I've yeah. never it watered probably, that. You might have found some subsurface water. So, yeah, we got some shallow water here because if you didn't water that pine at all for years. Years. Yeah, years. It's, it's, it, it, would, it would die. Uh, it's not that drought tolerant. Jeez, I better get a hose out there. Well, no, no, but it, it's, it's, it's full. Last time I saw it, it was full of foliage, right? Yeah. So it's got a water source or it wouldn't look like that. So you don't need to water it. That's the thing. You listen to the plant. The plant tells you. There and you that's, that's telling you, hey, I'm fine. No, or maybe it's because you kissed that tree once, actually. <laughs> <Did> <laughs> and Mike in Las Vegas wrote in, says, how would yuzu, passion fruit, and I think I'm saying this right, cherry moya do in our local climate? Who wants to take that? Well, I, uh, the first and the third I'm not familiar with by that name. Passion fruit is a vine that, uh, from my experience, is somewhat challenged, but I've also seen it do pretty well in... Uh, um, I think it actually got some afternoon sun. So, you know, I've I've tried it a couple times and mine didn't take. But I'm not I'm not gonna I'll try it again. Passion fruit's a really really cool, amazing flower. I mean, the structure of the flower is just it's breathtaking, and, and it'll get even maybe two two and a half inches across. Okay. And so some of these plants that are temperamental that are challenging. You know, that's the thing about gardening that's so engaging is you play with it and, and expect some casualties along the way and accept them and learn from them. And then there's plants that are so cool that I'm willing to try and try again and try again. So Again, I am here with Lor- Norm Schilling and Lauren McGue. I got this question earlier from Lily in Mesquite who says, I want to plant some drought-tolerant flowers. What are good options for southern Nevada? Lauren? So... I'm assuming she's referring to annuals or any sort of flowering, showy thing. Well, this time of year, uh, I know osteosperum and carnations are available. Um, and those, uh, I have those in the collection at the Botanic Gardens. As far as uh, native plants that do well in southern Nevada, I do like uh, globe mallow. Globe mallow does come in various colors. We do offer seeds to the public at the Botanic Gardens. We do have a seed bank. Globe mallow is uh, one of the species that we offer. Um, I mean, those those are uh, options that I do recommend that are very drought tolerant, can tolerate full sun. Yeah, uh, Norm, do you have ahead. recommendations, yeah. Norm? Yeah, we, yeah. Um, so uh, golden disodia or shrubby dogweed is you, yeah, it's hard to find in, in a nursery, but if you you can probably order it or get some seed, the seed is highly viable. Is that five needle prickly leaf? I might be. I don't Thimodia. know. Thimodia. Uh, uh, Disodia. Disodia okay. pentakita. 
and then we have a native disodia called Tenua loba. Um, I, I like the name shrubby dogweed because I think it's a really cute name. <laughs> but uh, golden disodia, and oh, and actually no, now it's and now it's Thymophila pentakeeta. So the the botanist, the uh, we do have taxonomists that change seed names. Yeah, at the botanic gardens, if the yeah. public wants to get. Yeah, them. and and I want to say this: her her garden is beautiful, and she's been. How long have you been working there now? As botanic garden manager, about two and a half years. Yeah, so in the past two and a half years, you know, I stop by there every once in a while. Mm -hmm. And the garden is really improving under Lauren's uh, management and leadership and with the help that she gets from the master gardeners. It's really, it's a great resource for the public to go in there and see what they're growing and where it's growing. And I'm sure you can ask questions and get some answers. They have guided tours sometimes. So... Um, and then you, <laughs> you're very welcome. It's, it's well-deserved, you know, she's worked really hard and, and you can see the, literally the fruits of her labor. Um, but, uh, another one is blackfoot daisy, right? It, it, once it's established, it's very drought tolerant, uh, convolvulus neorum, which is bush morning glory is a little bit of a larger perennial, really nice spring bloomer, silver foliage. Uh, and it, it, it doesn't like being overwatered. Euphorbia rigida, which is gopher plant, uh, again, doesn't like being overwatered. Once it's established, move the emitters back a couple, three feet. It'll find that water, you know, maybe six months after planting. And, you know, these, and, and it blooms early, early in the spring, and it has beautiful bluish foliage, really interesting structure. If you look at the stems, they spiral. So there's all these different textures as well. And that's the thing. The other thing is flower, the fl- you get color through flowers, but color through foliage is in the garden year round. And so there's just a lot of different varieties out there, a lot of different stuff you can plant. And can I add that Penstemon is another option as well? Yeah, there's a Penstemon Society of America and the members are called Penstemaniacs. (laughs) And yeah, it's the first thing when, you know, when I've been around for a while, when the internet first came out, the first thing I ever looked up was Penstemon and I was blown away. Right. There's so many different varieties and some of them reseed themselves. Uh, uh, we, there's Palmer's Penstemon, which has just amazing fragrance. Right. And very, very drought tolerant. I think Palmer's is a native species. Right. So, I mean, you get it established and you can grow it with just a little bit of supplemental watering. And then finally, I just, if I may, in about probably mid-March, Mojave Bloom Nursery is going to be opening up. And it's a... What's that? It's a, well, it's a nursery that I've started with a couple friends. Oh, a little self-promotion here. Yeah. <laughs> Am I allowed to do that? <laughs> Anyways. You can talk for 10 seconds. Huh? All right. A little bit north of the uh, uh, the Neon Museum. And we're, we're small, but we're going to try and carry that stuff that's really drought tolerant. Are you going to carry things that aren't carried in every other plant shop that's in the, Las that's, Vegas. That's the that's objective. the objective. Oh, yeah, okay. that's right. the objective. Well, um, good luck with that. Well, thank you very much. Um, I, again, I'm here with Norm Schilling and Lauren McGew, and they are Botanic Horticulture Masters and George from Henderson. Welcome to the program. Hello. Hey, go ahead, George. Yeah, I had a question about uh, some stone fruit trees. I have some peaches and they ripen and mature uh, like uh, May through the beginning of June. And I was questioned about any uh, varieties of fruit trees you'd recommend that ripen later in the summer, like towards the end of July, August, September, or is it just too hot for uh, stone fruit or any palm fruit for us in the valley? Well, so 
I, I can't name check them for you, but there are a lot of different varieties of, of the different stone fruits that will ripen. Most of them are, are spring, but I'm sure there's some variation within a couple month range anyways. Um, and uh, the, uh, the Cooperative Extension had the, the nursery out on, way out on the north end of the valley, right? Maybe. We have our, our research center on Horse Drive. Right. And uh, um, Bob, what's his name? Bob uh, did, did a lot of research on those different varieties out there and when they produce and how well they perform here. Um, the big thing, though, with the stone fruits is to make sure as they grow, the, the irrigation, the wetting pattern grows with them because these plants can pretty quickly outgrow. If you just have a few emitters at the base, you're fine for the first year or maybe two. But then as that plant, more leaves need more water. And the way they get more water is by putting their roots out. And you want to put, no, don't move the emitters out. Add additional emitters oh. around it. So you don't move those. Oh, that's what I've, I'm sorry. I, I did the wrong way. I moved my emitters out further as my tree grew, but I didn't keep the ones. That's the, the one in the front yard, which yeah. is a Palo Brea, right? I don't know. Yeah, I think so. It's something. Anyway, so that's a drought tolerant tree, and that's yeah. different. Those you move out because you're getting the roots to chase the water. They don't need much water. Right, so it's a different strategy. But if if it's a tree that is moderate water use that 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 needs more water here in the valley, you actually want to add it. And the roots have built to take best advantage of the existing wetting pattern where that water already is. So you don't want to move it. You just want to add it so that the roots continue to grow out into the surrounding soil. So you put another ring of emitters about four or five feet further out. And then you always go at least to the drip line and maybe, maybe beyond. Just figure each emitter is going to give you a wedding pattern when you run it long enough for about four or five feet. It's an African sumac. That's oh, okay. Yeah. They're... And before I get to some of these emails, Norm, I'm going to there – was, there was a survey done. It was by Pergola Kits USA, and they said the top five gardening trends of last year on social media were Japanese gardens, garden art – garden bars, rustic gardens, and sensory gardens. Cool. Uh, is that the kind of thing you, you, you normally deal with? Uh, Japanese gardens, not so much. You know, they're a little bit more challenged here, but you can. The, the thing about desert landscapes is you can create a landscape to fit a style that you want. It's just a different plant palette. Um, garden art is bringing in cool structures or, or sculpture or something that speaks to you or even to have uh, set of, uh, different displays, different areas of the garden. Um, you know, I, I've seen a couple of properties that have some really cool sculpture as part of the garden. Garden bar, that's, that's all right. <laughs> that's, that's, I think what they mean is build a bar in your garden. And part of a good garden is that sense of destination. You know, if you have enough space to have a patio a little bit further out that takes you down a pathway, and maybe that's where the bar is, and that's where, you know, you have a party, and that's where you serve the drinks. And it's yeah. a pretty awesome experience. What were the last two? Well, I was going to actually ask Lauren about yeah. the Japanese gardens. Aren't you doing something like that, like that at the Botanic Garden? Yes, I'm interested in renovating an area in the gardens to be a Japanese rock garden. I think that there are right and wrong ways to implement rocks uh, in the landscape, and seeing that rock landscape is very popular. Um, in Vegas, I would like to demonstrate a more Eastern-inspired approach. So I'm drawing inspiration from Japanese Zen gardening, 
um, and kind of adapting it to our environment. But um, I would like to see more of that around town. I think we can draw some some artistic inspiration from that. Well, very neat. We did get an email from Bethany who says, we have a blank canvas as our backyard, which is dirt, and we need to landscape it. We have dogs that love to run around and churn up the soil. We don't want to put a grass lawn in. I'm not really interested or thrilled about artificial grass either. Do you have any suggestions, Lauren? Well, it's great to have a blank canvas. There's so much opportunity. Um, I understand not wanting turf grass, but I do always recommend some sort of ground cover to keep your yard cool. So there are other options. Um, Carapia is one that is um, uh, an option that I have in the botanic gardens, actually. It can withstand some light treading. Another ground cover option that can withstand more treading is microclover. Um, and there are local vendors of those plants. Um, I do recommend installing proper irrigation, getting that good infrastructure put in for any like potential plants. Now is really the time, and finding a good, um, if you know, budget allows, finding a good contractor with a good portfolio. You know, we see I see Bermuda grass everywhere, even in probably yards that don't want it, but it grows very quickly, turns brown in the winter. But is is that considered something good or is that considered, you know, like a junk fish that you just you don't want? And in terms of including Bermuda intentionally yeah. in the landscape? Yeah. Do people put it in? Yes. Um, years and years ago, Bermuda used to be the only turf grass really in Vegas, and people accepted the seasonal That's nature why it's of it. everywhere. Oh, okay. Yes. And it's very drought resistant, um, and that's why it keeps coming back, even though people try to remove it. Uh, so, Bermuda is an option if you do want a lawn. Um, it's it, not the most. It, well, it's, it's, I was just going to say, and it's more drought, to- it's more drought tolerant than, than fescue the traditional evergreen grass. So it uses, uh, during the growing season, it uses about 70% of the water as fescue. And it's still quite a bit of water to keep it nice and green. Uh, and then it, it turns brown in the winter, which means, you know what, you can shut the water off to the Bermuda and it, it won't die. You can shut it off for Something a year. Never and it'll come. I think eventually it will, <laughs> but I don't know how long it is. And, you know, so if you have Bermuda and you don't want it, that's a totally different matter. That's when you have to go into attack mode and you can't, unfortunately, you can't dig it out. Why not? Because there's uh, underground runners called uh, stolons. It's like bamboo. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, I think, yeah, in the sense that it, it mm-hmm. will produce new plants off mm-hmm. the, the underground runners. But those stolons have about every inch or two in uh, uh, what's called a node, which is where the actual little rootlets come out. And those nodes, one little piece of node, you know, a little piece of tissue, maybe a quarter inch long, contains all the genetic information to produce a new plant. So you pull the plant out, you leave one little tiny bit behind, it gets water, it comes back. And that's why, unfortunately, the only way to kill Bermuda that I know of that's at all practical is to kill it chemically. Or you can dig it down maybe two feet, remove all the soil, throw it away, and then hope that there's none of it below two feet. So yeah, that's intense. So that's that's not practical at all. So you know, yeah, we're getting a lot of emails here. And Joanna asks, "Can a Joshua tree be planted and survive in Summerlin? And if so, where can you buy one?" So yes, absolutely. Joshua's Joshua's can do really well here, and they're very drought tolerant. In fact, it's the uh, the symbol that I you chose for my my company. Um, 
uh, it really, it's a backbone. It's an indicator plant of the Mojave Desert, and they're gorgeous. Um, the thing about Joshua's is that they're all wild harvested, and the Southwest has been going through a drought for the past 10 or 15 years, so they're pretty drought-stressed out there in the wild. The success of a plant in transplant has a lot to do with how healthy it is going into that process, right? So you take stress plants and you try and transplant them, they're much less likely to succeed. So um, you can get them from vendors. What you want is something that's already established and has a root system. The bare root plants, and that includes ocotillos that you sometimes see at the nursery laying in a pile, those, the chances of survival aren't great. And uh, so, yeah, you can get them and, and you get them from a qualified nursery or a good nursery or a good contractor that's going to get you some specimens that are well-rooted and have been well-cared for. And Sarah from Las Vegas wrote in and says, I have a small balcony. I'm wondering what vegetables I can grow in containers during early spring in southern Nevada. Well, Lauren, you've got we you could, got a list there. You can. We do have a container collection at the Botanic Gardens. Um, I don't believe we have any vegetables in it at the moment, but I think that tomatoes, perhaps cherry tomatoes, would be a good option. Um, we have a list of recommended cultivars that we provide visitors at the gardens when they come in, and so I can provide a more extensive list if people call in or walk in. Um, yeah, I would say. Tomatoes, you can grow, um, it's not a vegetable, we can grow citrus in a container on a, on a balcony as well. And, of course, herbs. Yeah, and I, I, think, I think just in general, the larger the pot, the better your chances of success are because they can dry out pretty quickly. Again, just always remember the more leaves the plant has, the quicker it's going to use up the water. And, and the container is a limited uh, reservoir of water and nutrients. But yeah, you can grow a lot of stuff. And again, if you're on a if you're on a, a patio, right, you've got an exposure. It might be really shady, so you have to think about that. Are they going to get afternoon sun? Are they going to get a lot of sun? Or is it going to mostly be in the shade? And then choose uh, vegetables that like that kind of environment. Question here from Sam in North Las Vegas. I'm not sure if you guys know about this, but can somebody talk about how you grow microgreens in a garage? Um, Hydroponically or uh, That's the extent of that question But you can expound on that Well I'm assuming there's some sort of light source Um, I mean there are hydroponic systems now That are pretty affordable That people can purchase and grow microgreens that way And the systems are pretty streamlined at this point Um, So I mean you need adequate sunlight You need adequate irrigation You need adequate nutrients so I'm assuming hydroponically is going to be the way to go. Yeah, and there's there's a ton of information on the web on how to set something up like that. Yeah. And, you know, one of the upsides of the burgeoning marijuana industry is that there's a lot of – there's been a lot of research in hydroponic systems and how to make them commercially viable and work well. Do you, you still have some of your old equipment from those days uh, at home? No. You know, <laughs> <laughs> no, I think – so honestly, so you've teased me about this before <laughs> – Probably in the 80s, I had a little lamp set up, and I tried it, and it didn't work well. And The uh, 80s, huh? Yeah. <laughs> and Kyle from Henderson, welcome to the program. Hi, Kyle here. Um, I just had a quick question about um, more native plants and things like that. I know I've seen a lot more and more on social media about 
utilizing like American grasses that are native North America um, as like accents to lawns or even for larger properties is will that um, is there is there good recommendations for replacements for Bermuda grasses without having to like dig too deep um, that maybe even would take over and not um, in like in a natural way is that is that oh, a possibility? That's interesting. Could something grow better? than Bermuda grass and take over so it can't grow. No. I mean, if it's, if it's a really, really drought-tolerant landscape. So my personal, my home property is out kind of on the edge of the valley, and there's a front area between the road and the wall, and I didn't landscape it. I let nature landscape it. So there's some vacant properties, and the creosotes moved in, and brittle brush, brittle, brittle, brittle bush, brittle, brittle bush um, and the sphrousias, which are the globe mallows. Um, they came in and then I planted some really drought tolerant stuff. So if there was Bermuda there, it doesn't get much water. I just water it, you know, a few times a year. But so Bermuda won't take off. So in that sense, if you have Bermuda and you don't hardly ever water, the, the Bermuda's not going to thrive. It'll still be there and you might pull it every once in a while. Maybe it'll eventually go away. So, but if you haven't if you have an established Bermuda, lawn of Bermuda and you plant stuff in there, you have to water it because unless you're doing it from no, you have to water it anyways. And it's going to have a limited root ball, so you have to water it fairly frequently. And then the Bermuda is going to just grow right into the plant that you're growing, and it's kind of a weed nightmare. I hate the chemicals. I don't. I shouldn't say I hate them. I don't want to use them. I really avoid them. But sometimes it just makes sense and. So there's a way, I guess, you could manage it. But most the thing about Bermuda, it's like the cockroach, man. That's the one that's going to survive. It'll take over. It'll win the battle. You can't really outcompete Bermuda with yeah. other grasses or other ground covers. It is very No, it'll difficult. just grow through it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Victoria in Henderson has an interesting question. Welcome, Victoria. Hello. Um, I have a, um, a question about caliche. I have a small area, five by six. And it's taken me um, it's taken me over a year to dig down deep um, to get a, a better root system for my plants because they they seem like they're they're not growing hardy or taller. And so I was wondering I did um, I did break up part of the caliche and I still have at least um, another four feet uh, to break up. I was wondering if the caliche could be used in better soil uh, or do I need to remove all of the caliche and then put in a better soil soil for first you guys for, for newcomers to this area could you explain what caliche is caliche caliche is a bed of, of rock basically that develops underneath our, our our desert soils and I forget what the chemical composition that causes it to form but it's like natural uh, calcium concrete. carbonate yeah yeah how, yeah. So, Victoria, how far down have you um, dug so far? I've dug at least two feet, but it's taken me over a year because I do it by mm-hmm. hand. Mm-hmm. And um, so now I have this part of this caliche that's uh, this, so- this small particles of caliche, and I was wondering if that's good for the soil or should I take all of it out and well, replace it with better soil? It's 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 basically they're rocks, right? And you know, plants don't put their roots into rocks, so they're taking up root space. So yeah, it's it's good to get rid of it. Um, so you, 
true caliche, a, a true caliche is like a, a field of solid rock. You go down, you hit it. I remember at the Desert Demonstration Gardens down at the low end, we had a, we had caliche, and we got it. We borrowed a jackhammer from the distribution guys, and we spent half a day banging on that thing with a jackhammer, and we went down about four inches. So if you have true caliche, it is you're not going to break through. You're, you're, you need to get help to get through it. You can't dig your way. Now, if you, so the other thing too, is that for me to dig a hole, so I'm 62 now, right? For me to dig a hole takes longer than it used to, right? Some of these guys that are in their, their twenties, I mean, that's what they do for a living and they can, they can bust that stuff out a lot faster and it might be cost effective to get some help doing it. And if you're getting it in chunks, then I think there's, there's hope that you, here's the thing. Do, do a drainage test. Dig a hole, fill it with water, see how long it takes to drain. If it doesn't drain in 48 hours or 24 hours, if it drains in 24 hours, you got good drainage, you can plant. You can plant. As long as you can dig a hole big enough for the plant, put a desert plant in there, you can, you can grow there. Sometimes we go too far in trying to prep the soil to plant. And that's why I like desert plants, because they like crappy soil. Lauren, do you want to add to this? Yes, I do with caliche a lot at the Botanic Gardens property. Um, a, a lot of the seven acres was um, right on top of caliche. So tools that I recommend are a digging bar. And if you're really dealing with heavy-duty caliche, you do need to contract someone with a hoe ram. Um, and so it can be very um, costly if you're going that route. But I do what Norm just described. I do drainage, drainage tests, and I, I dig many holes myself. But you don't always need to plant things as deeply as some people think. Um, yeah. Some people think you need to really stick a plant yeah. deep, deep in the ground, and you don't. And oftentimes, plants in our environment have most of their root system within the upper, like, 18 inches of soil. And they develop far and wide root systems. I had an Afghan fig in the collection that I had to deaccession that had a root system going out 20 feet in every direction. Yeah. And it was it was tiny, but it had this uh, extensive wow. wide root system on the very surface of the soil. And she's made a really good point is that most of those roots are near the surface. The general rule of thumb, I, and this isn't just southern Nevada, is 40% of the roots of a tree are in the top six inches, 30% in the next six, 20% in the next six, 10%, 18 to 24 inches down, and then nothing below that because there's no oxygen down there, right? They, the, the roots need oxygen just like they need water. And here's the other thing. Desert plants like to go dry. They don't like they don't like their feet wet. They don't like their base wet. So it's actually a, a good thing to plant them kind of a little bit high and proud, right? You put them just a little a couple inches high, and you let that soil kind of taper off on either side. That's going to help you get good drainage, right? And as long as the, the the problem with caliche is if water stands down there, just sits at the base of the roots or the base of the plant, and then the plant can rot. So if you're not watering very often, then that water can get used by the plants and transpire uh, or evaporate, and you can manage it. Okay. Our number is 702-258-3552, son at knpr.org. Joanne says, I have an S- Azadi pomegranate that blooms beautifully, but the blooms fall off, fall out without having fruit. In fact, last year it bloomed twice, but both times the blooms dropped off. What's going on? 
Well, I don't know of an azadi pomegranate, and most pomegranates just bloom once in the spring, so this may be a variety that I'm not aware of. Have you heard I'm of it? I'm not familiar with this okay. either. I think a lot of times with, with fruit trees, what happens is if, they've, if the, the blooms don't hold, so sometimes it, it's, it's wind, but I think um, a lot of fruit trees outgrow, and this is just true of trees in general, outgrow their wedding pattern, what I was talking about earlier. You know, it was a, it did fine when it was a little two or three foot plant. Now that it's eight feet tall and, and, you know, six feet wide or whatever, it may not just have the water resources to maintain the, that, that flowering and that setting of fruit. Um, the, the flowers drop off anyways, right? After that, once the, the fruit is, is pollinated or not, um, when it sets fruit or it doesn't, the, the, the flower is a very temporary organ, and it'll drop off. Um, but you want the plant to have the water resources available so it can do everything it needs to do, which includes growing leaf, growing uh, flowers, growing fruit, defense, building roots, right? It's, it, just like us, we need a certain amount of water for our physiology to do what it needs to do, which is a lot of different stuff. And the same is true of plants. Inadequate nutrients. I'm curious to know if she fertilizes and what she uses um, yeah. and... Yeah, that's something to consider as well. Yeah. And Joanne, if you want to email us, I'll we'll try to get your email forwarded to Norm and Lauren. Again, uh, you can email us at lson at knpr.org. You know, I, I'm kind of wondering, you know, based on the warming that we've had, we had a lot of rain this mm-hmm. winter. It, it wasn't a really cold winter. And we've had similar patterns over the last couple of years in Nevada. I, should we expect a lot of pests this spring and this summer? You, you should be wary <laughs> of pests. Mm-hmm. I mean, the thing the thing about pests is that their cycles are, for me and I think for most, are really mysterious. I mean, different insects, more a wetter, warmer climate is going to be better for some invertebrates than others and drier, wetter, or I mean, drier, cooler, whatever. There's There's always some fluctuation in pest problems. I think, so here's what I'd want to say about that. Don't worry about it. Don't lose sleep. Keep, monitor your plants and then try to avoid using pesticides because my consistent experience has been the less I use pest, pesticides, the fewer pest problems I have. And biological diversity, having a lot of different species of plants in your garden that are in bloom, it's going to attract predators. And if you, and, and the thing about using pesticides is they kill pests, but they also kill predators oftentimes, right? And the pests typically have much more rapid reproduction cycles than the predators. So a biological control. Um, there's a company in California called Rincon Vitova, R-I-N-C-O-N-V-I-T-O-V-A. You can order you can order the traditional ladybugs and praying mantids, but they also have one of my favorites is lacewing larvae, and they come in these little hex cell units. They're in their little own little prison cages, little tiny cages, and you release it and you tap them out and you spread them out because if they find each other, they'll eat each other. But a, a lacewing larva will walk a mile and eat a hundred times its body weight, and they love aphids and they love everything they can get their little pincher jaws on. Okay. So there's lots of ways to approach it. We have time for one more call. Sue from Las Vegas has a question about something we talked a little bit about earlier. Sue, welcome. Hi, sorry about that. I didn't tune in until... No, that's okay. Go ahead. Um, I was very nicely given in a pot for Valentine's Day yesterday. And the gentleman was told that it could grow successfully in fruit in a pot. 
I have a very hot and very sunny courtyard, piled and heat bounces off the garage wall. But my question is, can a prickly pear be successfully grown in a pot in, under those circumstances? On a warm, sunny patio, can a prickly pear survive? Could it do well? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it yeah, can. I mean, um, be careful not to overwater. Um, in the botanic gardens, most of the prickly pear I have in the collection in the summer, I irrigate once a week in the winter, once every two weeks or once a month. Um, in a container, you may need to change that a little, but I think overwatering would be your biggest hazard there. It's true. Yeah, these succulents. So prickly pears, generally, they're the North American opuntias, um, or not just North America, but they're very drought tolerant. They store water. My rule of thumb with succulents in pots in Vegas is water once a week in the summer, twice a month, spring and fall, once a month in the winter if they don't get any rainfall. But prickly pears are particularly well suited to grow in a pot in a dry, hot climate. And uh, and, and people eat them. The fruit. Yeah, well, the, the fruit, yes. Yeah, the pads also. You can, you know. You can eat both. You need to make sure you prepare them properly. Okay. Well, that is really all the time we have for today. Uh, I would really want to thank Norm Schilling and Lauren McGew, Botanic Garden Manager for the Horticulture Program of UNR Extension in Clark County. Uh, both of you, uh, it was great. Thank you so much. Oh, it was fun. Thank you. Thank you.